0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Rooftop Leadership Podcast, where we talk about the kind of challenges that you face and and the opportunities that are in front of you for empowered local leadership. That's really what we're about here, and uh, I am I am super excited about today's topic. and And what we're going to be talking about is um, is waking up from the trance. That's uh, that's the the theme that I've given to today's uh, podcast. And you'll see why in a few minutes. But before we introduce our guest, I, I want to share with you when I was um, on one of my tours in Afghanistan, I think it was my second one. You know, we did a lot of work as a Green Beret, we did a lot of work with Pashtun tribes. I've worked with tribes most of my life in various capacities uh, around the world. And, and, you know, in Afghanistan, the, the tribal population, the Pashtun tribal population, it's one of the largest tribal populations, if not the largest in the world. Um, and, and we do a lot of shoulder to shoulder work with them. And in one particular village, we were working with, uh, tribes there and we were about to go on an operation that night. And the, 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 gentlemen that were going to be going on that operation with us, uh, put themselves over away from the rest of the, of the Green Berets and they started to go through. A ritual. They started to go through a dance where they started to jump up and down and their breathing started to become uh, uh, in sync and they started to chant and, and, and they started a dance uh, called the Atan. And i had always heard about the Atan, but I had never seen it in uh, real time. And it is a tribal war dance. It's a dance that is, is, has been done for centuries by Pashtun tribes in different capacities, and it's always done before going into battle. And what struck me about that is I watched this with the sun setting uh, over the Hindu Kush and 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 this timeless dance that was playing out. But yet in modern times with Hilux trucks and Humvee vehicles behind us, um, mm-hmm. it struck me that just about every society that I'd ever worked in, there was some kind of dance like this that mm-hmm. was in place. And it was there to allow these tribal folks to move into a state that is not a natural state, a mm-hmm. state where they could overcome an aversion to violence and do things that they had to do or that they felt they had to do to survive and win. And it's, you know, it, it's all over the world. I've seen some version of this dance and they would literally work them up in, themselves up into a trance like state. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that far afield from uh, rituals that I've seen in other militaries as well. And I tell you that story today because um, it's really where I want to go. It's not unique, uh, this trance-like state, uh, to tribes. You know, actually, um, I think many citizens around the world today uh, are are susceptible to this trance-like state that's taking place, albeit I don't think it's as deliberate uh, as what my Pashtun cousins were doing in that (laughs) moment. Um, and I, but I do believe that this, this trance-like state that, uh, that is out there is dividing us as a society. It's, it's, it's pushing us into groups and behaviors that are very, very dangerous. Um, and, and I think that if we don't start to get some recognition of this, as, not just as a society, but as individual leaders at a local level, um, we are at risk. We are at risk as a society, and also we're at risk as individuals because it doesn't discriminate. This trance-like state can can take hold in a range of ways, particularly um, as we come out of um, this pandemic and 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 we start to move towards what I'm what I've kind of coined as almost a shadow tribalism, a form of shadow tribalism where we are uh, this trance-like state is dividing us into grouping behaviors. That's very very concerning to me. And my my guest today, uh, in my opinion, I think knows more about. What's happening with this than anybody I know, and I've and I've worked around experts in this field a lot around conflict resolution and diplomacy and um, and just societal issues and 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 uh, my friend John Bell who is joining me today on the Rooftop Leadership Podcast is just a wealth of knowledge on this not just at an academic level but this this gentleman has run the miles uh on 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 diplomacy and conflict resolution and let me just give you a little bit of his background he's the director of the conciliators guild um, and uh, he's he's also the director of the middle east and mediterranean uh, mediterranean program and the eurasia program at the toledo uh, international center for peace he is the uh, former middle east director for search for common ground a global resolution ngo Uh, He's also a former Canadian and UN diplomat, and he served in uh, Ottawa, Cairo, Beirut, Jerusalem, and Gaza. And uh, that alone, just the miles that he's run uh, in the arena, to me, just speaks volumes. But the work that he is doing now around... the human behavior and, and diplomacy and, 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 and a different approach, you, you got to hear it. So without any further ado, John, welcome to the uh, Rooftop Leadership Podcast.
1: Thank you, Scott. And I loved your intro about the trance, by the way. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, not enough people think about the problems in the political world from the angle that you've introduced. So I'm really actually excited to, to talk to you about all this stuff because I think it's a fantastic approach. Thank you.
0: Um, well, let's start with give us give us a little background on yourself, John. You know, I, I, I'm sure. always reluctant to read someone's bio because, a I always screw it up. But <laughs> right. but I don't think any bio does justice uh, to one's backstory. So I'd love to if you want, Brian, take sure. a few minutes and just kind of talk to us about how you got to where you are now and, and, and sure. the journey from, from your from your lens.
1: Sure. Thanks, Scott. Um, well, my story's a bit of a long one. I'm going to make it really short. Um, I'm from the Middle East originally, I was born there, immigrated to Canada, grew up in Canada, became then a Canadian diplomat, which I was privileged to be a Canadian diplomat. Canadian diplomat, I served uh, in Cairo with the Canadian embassy, had a fantastic time, diplomacy can be a lot of fun, cocktail parties and all. But of course, I started to be exposed to all sorts of interesting political uh, issues from local issues inside Egypt, including, you know, extremism and violent extremism, sure. extremism and stuff like that, to um, troubles in Egypt, writ large to regional issues in the Middle East. So I built a career around Middle East diplomacy, and I went from being a Canadian diplomat to being a UN diplomat. I worked in Gaza for a short time, but worked especially between, on the border between Lebanon and Israel, which could get hot, and it did a couple of times when I was there. And, uh, but then I left institutional official diplomacy for what's called the world of mediation. And it's called track two diplomacy, track two being non official. So I became, I freed myself, if you wish, to become more of a freelancer. And I've now worked over 20 years, I think, all over the Middle East, North Africa, but more the Middle East itself. Trying to resolve problems. I mean, if you look at the region, you would think all of us working on it aren't doing that great a job because the Middle East is not doing very well. Uh, and that's an important point because that's what took me to, I think, the space that you want to discuss with me and the work at the Conciliators Guild, which is far, far more than me. Um, I have many excellent colleagues, um, which is I always looked at the problems in the Middle East and saw human beings and saw human beings falling into traps of their own making. It's a bit sad. It's our vulnerabilities. And we all have them. It's not the Middle East. It's across the globe.
0: Yeah.
1: And that, talk, that took me on a big learning journey to find out why do we fall into these traps? Why do we stay in them? You talk about trance. That's one of the best ways to stay in the trap. We could get into that a bit. And I met a terrific bunch of people along the way psychologists, anthropologists, specialists in these issues, which, by the way, I should say right up front, I'm not. I'm a diplomatic and mediation practitioner, and I'm a specialist in the Middle East politically. That's what I am. But I do bridge between that world and the world of human behavior. And maybe one last word uh, to kick things off, and that is, as soon as I joined you on on this podcast and video, I see that you have an iceberg behind you. And I'm happy to tell you that we use that Im- the same exact image. It's a wonderful coincidence in a lot of our presentations It's exactly the same image because we always try to emphasize that what we see above the surface is such a small portion of what's driving human behavior. So much of it is below the surface that we've got to get a better handle on it. And that's, what's driven me to be where I am.
0: Yeah, such a beautiful backstory, John. And, you know, honestly, I, so, so much I want to say here, I watched, First of all, anyone watching or listening to this, you need to lean into this because uh, we're going to start at a diplomacy level and we're going to talk uh, at a macro. But I promise you, John is going to take you there fast. He's going to get you within. It won't be long at all. You'll, you will locate yourself in his story. And I say that, John, because the first time I watched you on an interview, um, I was on vacation and someone, uh, uh, our mutual friend, uh, JP from mm-hmm. Ontario sent me he's like you got to watch I watched it and I was so pissed because I was like where was this guy when I was in special forces because he's speaking exactly what we needed to hear and still need to hear and and so it is since you and I have become friends I'm astounded a we're both practitioners mm-hmm. and and we both have a very healthy respect for you know the metaphorical representation of this iceberg and what we know and what we don't know and and I too traverse that world albeit much more of a student than you are, to and much more to learn. But I'm just, I'm really honored to, to be in this place with you as a fellow practitioner who has such a reverence for what you're about to go into. And I hope that anyone watching or listening, just trust me right now that what we're about to go into, John's going to bring it right back to your life. He's going to bring it to your community. He's going to bring it to your family, and he's going to bring it to you looking in the mirror. So let's let's unpack it, John, let's, let's start. I mean, first of all, I want to say that the conciliators guild, what would you, let's just start there. What sets that organization and your approach apart from the more conventional traditional ways of looking and dealing with conflict?
1: Um, Most conflict resolution um, is based on interests. So you look at state parties in conflict, or they don't have to be states. It could be non-state actors. And you try to figure out what their interests are and try to get them to work together. We go a cut deeper. Okay. There are many academics who do this. I don't know too many organizations that do this actively uh, in the field. We go a cut deeper and say, you really need to understand how the human behavior dimension, what's below the surface of the iceberg, Really works to get a much better handle on resolving a conflict, or on frankly, on doing politics more effectively, or on trying to decrease uh, polarization in the society, for example, as is happening in the United States. To do that, you, 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 have to, you have to have knowledge. You don't have knowledge, you're kind of walking blind. And what differentiates us is our desire and our impetus to get that knowledge out as broadly as possible, about human behavior and how it affects politics. Yeah. We think over time, you know, through a trickle down, as that knowledge gets out, there there will be slow but sure improvement in in policy and in politics.
0: Okay, so let's keep it fascinating. Let's keep it at the, I want to keep it at the, um, let's talk about government. Let's talk about military for a second, because because like you, um, when we, Toward the end of my career, we were doing a program called Village Stability Operations in Afghanistan, and it was a bit epiphanal in the sense that we had been there for 10 years, and we had essentially created an antibody to stability uh, by pushing communities away, uh, coming from top down, and and frankly, not understanding any of the stuff below the surface of what was really driving behavior there. Uh, We had our own agenda of what we wanted to do. And I'm really not trying to unpack that here, but I'm simply saying that as we started to make those discoveries by living in those communities, that was the big difference in in, in this new program. We literally immersed and and went local. We faced such resistance at diplomatic levels, uh, programmatic development levels, and certainly military levels and political levels. There was just, it was as if what we were talking about just either there was no interest or no resonance in it. And it was all top of the waterline kind of stuff. Right. Have you experienced the similar problem? And so what's happening with that
1: completely? I mean, the the, the similarities are are huge in the diplomatic field, to be honest with you. Um, Let me look, let let me take it at three levels. okay? Okay. The first level is diplomats are at ease working with each other. We have certain common codes, common language, common understanding of things. And the traditions of diplomacy go back to the 19th century, if not earlier. Yeah. Salons, elites meeting. And they're good at it. Some of them are very clever people, very, very capable people. I don't want to diminish their capacities and their strengths. But, and this is the, this is the point where I'll bring it home to what you're saying, Quite often, there's a considerable disconnect between that work, where you're sometimes patching up countries or patching up, you know, huge issues, and the fundamental context of the people living in those countries.
0: Yeah.
1: Look, it's a living issue for me right now, because I continue to work on the Middle East. There are geopolitical diplomatic actions being taken about the Middle East as we speak, between the United States and Iran between the Europeans and uh, certain Arab countries. They're ongoing, okay? They're trying to resolve conflict. Drives me crazy that many of these initiatives don't take into consideration what the effect is going to be on the stability of those countries at the community level and at the citizen level. Now, they, they could argue they don't have the bandwidth. They just can't. They're trying to deal with already very complex issues. My argument would be you're starting at the wrong end of the stick. So there there may be diplomatic answers. They will resolve some things. But if you resolve things at that high, at the top of that iceberg you have behind you, at the peak, and it's not well-rooted or you've ignored because you just can't take it into consideration, um, the effect on the local political context, you're going to have trouble. It's as straightforward as that. People, if their needs aren't met, if they're resentful, if they're ignored, they'll rise up again. And I, I can tell you right now that I would even predict, no matter what diplomatic deals are cut in the Middle East, people, average citizens in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, maybe even Iran itself, will rise up no matter what deals are cut, just to make it bring it like right home. The other quickly, the other thing I wanted to mention is there's a problem with the speed of trying to get things done politically at the policy level. Um, people, the higher up the food chain they are, the faster they work, the less attention they pay to detail, and the less attention they pay to context, including, that's a big word, context, including just the living context, the people involved. It's tweets, it's rapid policy briefs. It's a mile a minute and it's like three points, and I don't have any more attention span. You know, I really got to ask anybody is that a way to run anything? Yeah. And people will just say that's just the way of the world.
0: I, I was just going to build on that for a second. I mean, I, I told you all that he, he'll take you there fast. Like, I, I don't think it's a stretch at all, John, and what you just said that you could map that onto, I think, pretty much any collective. I I think if you were to take what you just said and apply that to politics in the West or the United States or how you run your small company or even a community, like what you just said, those cautions and observations, those really are kind of invisible truths, aren't they?
1: I, I, I absolutely think so. And I would even put it as if you really want to do proper politics, you got to slow things down. I know that what I'm saying is against the digital age but sure. we're speeding everything up. Uh, but I think it's a truth. Why? Why do you have to slow things down? Because you have to connect to the real, you have to connect to real people. Yeah. You have to connect to real events because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we map, what, what diplomacy we come up with, what policies, those are representations of reality. They're not the actual reality. They're a best guess. So what I'm really talking about is trying to improve that guess so it matches reality a lot better. And reality, in the end, in every single society, what exactly what you're saying is local. Yeah, it's local. I mean, in the end of the day, you got real people doing real things all over the world, and the gap between capitals and local is become a real problem across the world.
0: It is. It really has. I, I see that. It's amazing the similarities. I, I was giving a talk one time. John, I was close to retirement and I, I think it was at the Foreign Service Institute. Um, and I was talking about it was a lessons learned presentation on, you know, at that point, I think it was a decade plus in Afghanistan. And, and, and we had just started this village program. And I, you know, I was comparing and contrasting the, the, you know, when we had gone in there with that top down, you know, get it done fast, you know, drive through approach and versus I, cause I had just said, If we stay working with these villagers, you're looking at probably 100 years of capacity building because informal civil society is so damaged. It's more damaged than the state apparatus. Um, And a a young diplomat asked me a question. She said, what would be your number one takeaway going forward into these kind of places for us to think about that you would pass on to someone else? And I said, go local or go home. You know, well, I hope they
1: listen to you. (laughs) And I would add, I would also, I'd go slow, like slow cooking. It comes out better, but these habits aren't that, you know, people are competing to get things done in the governments, et cetera. And- yeah.
0: So how do we, okay. So let's, let's, let's start bringing it. What I'd like to do now, if we could, I'm going to start kind of bringing it closer to home. I want to, uh, you know, if we could bring it to, you know, Western society and start to bring it even and and, and I'd like to talk about the United States and some of your, um, objective observations about that, because I think you're you're actually well placed to give us some things to think about. Um, but I, but I'd like to start with um, what are we up against here? I mean, let's let's talk about the, these things called the human givens, because you sure. you know at in your approach, I mean, you have made it very clear that those innate needs of humans um, cannot be ignored. Can, can you just talk a little bit about that and why that's so relevant? Sure. And then and we'll bring it to like what, how that's starting to show up here. in. in right.
1: Well, look, I mean, uh, absolutely. We, we take a different starting uh, position to look at politics. Okay. We don't just rush to political structures and political habits. And I want to emphasize they are habits. People forget that you just develop habits. And you think it's the real world. It's not. <laughs> we start at a very strange place. We start with a human being. We actually say, what is a human being and what drives a human being? And I like the human givens approach because it says very simply that human, given, human beings have basic innate needs. Needs like the need for intimacy, autonomy, meaning in your life, a need to belong. It could be to your family, it could be to a country, a sense of achievement. An interesting one, well, one in politics that plays out usually is the need for status. We all have a need for status. Nobody doesn't have any need for status. A need for achievement and competence, I mentioned, and then there's the need for attention. This is one that most people aren't familiar with. Now, politicians tend to overdo it in their attention-seeking, as we all know, but all human beings have a need for attention and they can be attention-starved or actually the exact opposite. They can be attention-gluttons. These basic drivers, this is probably the most critical thing I'm going to say, these basic drivers... They're like, think of them, the parallels with food. If you don't have food, you're going to go crazy getting food. It's the same with these basic emotional innate needs. They're innate because they're just in us. They have to be met sufficiently and not excessively, but sufficiently. And if they're not, you're going to go into anxiety mode and you could get violent.
0: Yeah,
1: Depends on the individual, depends on the group. So we really push this understanding. If you want people to calm down to think constructively and creatively, you've got to get their needs met. If you don't, it's only a rare superstar that can rise above their anxieties and see the world clearly. Once we're immersed in the emotion term in the in the maelstrom, in the storm of emotion, tough. Tough to tough to a get out of and tough to deal with the world that way in a successful fashion. So one great. quick caveat, one quick caveat. There are moments in life where you have to be ultra urgent. Tiger's about to jump on you. You got to kill it. I'm not denying that. But if you think hard about it, most of life isn't like that at all. Those are rare cases where well, you would know better than anybody having been a Green Beret. That the emergencies are rare. Yeah. So that's, that's the human givens approach.
0: You laid it out so well. Um, so I just want to build on it if I can. Um, what I've what I've noticed, and and I had started to. Why well, I was so relieved, and Wes was so relieved off camera here, that when we saw, the, when we found the human givens, was there's so much rigor to understanding what's below this waterline? If the, if this iceberg is human nature, and you know we had started on a journey of discovery, John. At least in our in our small organization, really dating back to two thousand ten when we started living in these communities. And, and by, by the necessity, uh, starting to understand things like status society, honor, shame, hospitality, there were, there were these, um, and, and we didn't go as far back as what um, Ivan and, and you have done. Like th- these were things that we were seeing as, you know, these were primal uh, type collective realities, status society, hospitality, long form communications, feud, Uh, you know, but, but they, uh, restorative justice, right. And, and all of these things really stood out because they were, they were starkly different than the transactional contract society that we were all coming from as soldiers and diplomats. So, you know, it was, it was not as deep as you've gone, which I think is great because we do need to go very back, back to the human being herself, and, and so what I've noticed, and I'm interested in your take on this, is that there is this, there's this dissonance, this disconnect uh, from those of us living in the modern world and our true nature. It's as if we don't even know who we are
1: anymore. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's also an issue of great personal interest to me because I see... Um, an increasing and accelerating pace of disconnect from who we are. In fact, there's even um, I would even go one step further. There's a kind of denial that there is anything called human nature. And I must you know, stress that I'm of the view that it's 50-50, nature-nurture. It's 50-50. The one shouldn't really deny one nor the other. Nurture does matter. Our nature, we're, we don't live in a vacuum. We're affected by our context and what happens to us, but I, I agree with you. I see the same thing—an increasing disconnect from from primal drivers and and at our peril because they're still there.
0: So I'd like to I'd like to ask you something about this peril, and I'd, I'd like to, this is a a premise that I'm operating on that I'm starting to talk about, and I'd like your um, your perspective on it. But my belief is that when we are in, in the modern world if if we dismiss our nature whether and whether that is willful or whether it's unwitting right but if there is this water line that you see behind me if, if the tip of that iceberg is the modern world and it's the it's the it's the tweets and the business meetings and the zoom calls and kids soccer practice and and we are oblivious to the, the you know to the to that 50% or greater na- nature that is below the surface Um. My observation has been that is if we do that, nature will still have her way. Mm-hmm. And, and that and the way she will present herself in the modern world is what I've labeled as shadow tribalism. It, it, it starts these negative applications of of, a, of of a traditional society that come out and they act on us because we drop into that trance like state. And we are cl- just operating off fear and anger. And I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Where am I wrong?
1: I, it, it, oh, I, actually, it's fascinating because you've come to something close to my own conclusions about it. Uh, independently, we've come to the same place. It's in, very interesting. About six months ago, I thought this disconnect is going to lead to more violent extremism. hmm um, that's one manifestation of extreme tribalism, if you wish. It's a kind of, you know, so because those people who are most attuned that we're losing a part of ourselves, in a way they're most connected to their own primal being. And if they can't see an outlet to exercise that constructively, they're going to get violent. Mm. So, well said. so um, that's one peril for sure is, Those who are most sensitive to human nature and don't see that their context, the world they live in, permits them space or or ways to have their needs met, beware. (laughs) That's number one. And by the way, I mean you can look at it on the flip side, which is that if you want to deal with the violent extremists, you got to look at them from that angle, which is that through their extremism, they're getting a lot of meaning in their life. They belong to a gang. Those are human givens. They have a sense of achievement. They get things done together. But there are other levels uh, that I think we can look at, Scott. I mean, look, we uh, we don't have to get into the debate about lockdowns and COVID, but people living in lockdowns are often isolated. Yeah, they don't have human contact. What's the end result of that? Is misery. They're unhappy. So the other, uh, the other. Um, Failure that we may face as a species from ignoring our own nature is misery. If you want to be a fulfilled human being, you got to have your needs met. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. Nobody ever gets them met across the board all the time perfectly. There's no such thing. We all know that life is too vague, it's changing all the time. And we all go through moments of crisis. But uh, the other aspect is just simply unfulfilled human beings. Yeah. And what worries me even more is that people are even forgetting that they have those needs. They're kind of getting buried below the surface so much that I would even say we're kind of, we have empty lives. Yeah. And how do you fill empty lives? Opioids, more screen time. Some go crazy, violent extremism. When you have an empty life, you don't know what you're going to fill it with if you're not skilled at filling it and if the opportunities aren't there.
0: Yeah, because, you know, Ivan talks about in the book, and and you talk about it as well, is that we are, we're not just, um, we're not just meaning seeking creatures, we assign meaning uh, to our arena. It's like, it's critical for us, right? Like it's meaning is, is is, is a driver, is it not?
1: Meaning, meaning is, is what I call it the special human given, because meaning takes you out of yourself. The other, the other human givens, Aren't kind of natural. You need attention. You need status. You need to belong to a community. Meaning has a vector element in it. It can take you out to achieve because you get meaning by doing something that you don't know. You're learning. You're taking yourself out of something to achieve an end. Now, that can be a political project, God help us, or it can be something as simple as a butterfly connection, collection. It could be something really, really simple. It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be grand but we need it. We need it. Essentially meaningless lives are really, I mean, have you lived in a way if you have a meaningless life?
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the isolation aspect because, um, and then I want to move into the trance-like state because I think all of these things, they do converge. Um, and, and it's interesting to me that very few people are talking about this, John. I mean, seriously. Like, if if you look out there in the in the in the in the arena today, where quote unquote leadership conversations are happening, there's, we're not talking a lot about our nature and what's below the surface and 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 being connected to that. So let's talk a minute on isolation. I mean, we we know that distancing is a is a is 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 a decision that's been made around the world to deal with this thing and you know, we'll look back on that historically, and I suspect there'll be assessments and analysis to that, and and it'll bear out how it bears out. But the reality is, it has led to isolation. And, And I'm curious in, you know, A, if you could talk a little bit about the need to be social as humans, and then what, in your assessment, has this isolation for a year led to? And what can we expect from that going into, you know, the coming months?
1: Well, I mean, first and most obviously, we're a social animal. We, we human beings don't survive on their own. Right. We are built to survive in groups. We, we wouldn't exist if we were these, you know, solitary creatures. We wouldn't have survived as well as we have. We are group animals, we're social animals. So it's built into us, it's biological. We need others at every level. We need to belong. Uh, in intimate relationships, in families, in communities, and in countries. Well, there's all sorts of levels of belonging. Um, so if you deny that to people, the ability to exercise their sense of belonging, their sense of intimacy, they will be miserable. And I'm, I, look, I'm not in a position to make any judgments about whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing about COVID because I don't have enough knowledge. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is this. Um, Yes, maybe social distancing is necessary. Yes, maybe lockdowns are necessary. I don't necessarily disagree with that because I don't have the knowledge to say yes or no. The only thing I find troubling is we never assess those decisions against a wider range of human needs. We just went straight for them. Again, going back to the beginning of our discussion, speed of light, almost in panic mode, frankly. And I think there was a lot of panic. So we rushed to answers, never questioned them, or never put them in context. And I, I, Scott, it would be fantastic if we can, before the end of this, discuss context a bit more because of the work, of a terrific work of Ian McGilchrist on context, because that's another, like trance, that's another issue that will kind of wrap things up. So that's what I'd say about isolation. Maybe it's necessary, but it, I would have... Really appreciated if a public health official or a government official would have been able to explain that we know that the full set of. By the way, I've even mentioned the economics. We we know there's a full set of human needs. We are assessing the decision to go in the lockdown based on X, Y, and Z. Instead, it's a kind of I'd call it a partial decision that may, in the end, be correct. I'm actually am not in a position to judge. So I hope that helps a bit in explaining.
0: No, no, it really, really does. And and I think what I'm talking about now to the leaders is like, you know, we can we can assess later. But but as we come out of this, whatever that looks like, I do think we also need to consider the fact that the people that we're going to lead now, whether those are family members that we haven't seen in a year uh whether that are people in our community or, you know, when we come back to work, right. What, you know, for the first time and we walk into the, that space together, if that indeed happens, I think we have to consider a year of cumulative isolation in how we connect with people. It's going to be different. It's not some, it's not going to just be, you know, group hugs and rainbows.
1: I I think you're absolutely right because we're also creatures of habit and we've now all become habituated To isolation, like prisoners,
0: yeah,
1: like prisoners. Look, I I heard something yesterday from uh, from somebody living in Germany. To me, this is extreme. So he tried to go into his workplace, the building, and he had to have a COVID test to go into the building. Every time he enters the building, he needs a COVID test. Now, to me, that's extreme. That's beyond isolation. You're talking about affecting basic movements of people. It worries me that these are templates, habits that we're developing, obviously, from government down that tell us how to live that are, in, in my view, unnatural, unnatural.
0: And there's a level of hubris to it as well, John, to me. That if you're going to, like you said, if you're going to make decisions, whether they, again, these could be organizational, these could be community-based, these could be in your family. Um, But if you're going to make decisions that, in effect, deny fulfillment of needs or human givens, you damn sure should know what the human givens are before you make those decisions. And that's what worries me, is that- Very well put you know, a lot of the decision makers at every level have such well. a lack of recognition of what our basic needs are. And so we absolutely will hit context because I love that. And I was at your workshop and I'm such a huge fan of Ian. I'm reading his book now. Um, but you know what, let's, before we hit context, I wonder, cause now for the listener and the viewer, hopefully we've established with you, you know, that there is, I think John, one of the most important things a leader can do at any level is to start to get awareness of what the human givens are, right? To start to get a, a, a more uh, dialed in understanding of of, of our nature and, and, and what those needs are in any situation. Do, would you add any color to that or would you frame that differently?
1: I wouldn't frame it at all differently. I think you've got it spot on. And maybe I'll just add something. It's not even color. I'll just add something. Look, we have to remember something, which is the starting point of the world we live in, which is the politics, the way politics are conducted is a certain habit that goes way back. This is why it's so difficult to change. You said it earlier, Scott, it's transactional. Yeah. People really view politics as strictly transactional. Now there are aspects of politics that are absolutely transactional and they will remain. So, but if we're going to improve politics, if we're going to actually make societies function In a more effective and less crisis ridden manner, we need to add this new dimension. So, so, uh, I mean, I've just finished a book about this, and the the title is The Missing Piece, because to me, this is the missing piece of the equation. Not enough attention on what happens to human beings when you make certain decisions. That's the only thing I'd add, because I know we got more ground to cover
0: perfectly. And, and by the way, congratulations on the missing piece. I mean, to a, 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 a person like you who has run as many miles as you have and who have, you've done so much synthesis of action and thought. And I, I mean, I, I'm sure this was a heavy lift uh, with this book. And I
1: oh, yeah, I'm not the most natural writer. I think that's why it was a heavy lift. It's easy. <laughs> anyway, oh, I, so. I find that hard to yeah. believe,
0: but I am yeah. really looking forward to getting into that. And and so let's, let's pivot into um, a, a phrase that I heard you say, and then I've read it uh, with the Human Givens Institute, and I've heard others talk about it. That you, in circles that you run with, I love it. I think we're introducing. You're introducing some new language to us that we can all use as leaders, and we can all use that. My goodness, understand what perceivably is madness at times happening around us, uh, and it is this the term this trance-like state. Right. And it, it's a manifestation that occurs. Um, but you are so much more articulate at this than me. So would you mind talking a little bit about the trance-like state in modern times and kind of what, what is it that, that, that is, how does that happen to us and, and how does it show up in a way that our viewers and listeners would understand it in their own lives?
1: Right. Okay. So the way, maybe the best way to explain it is to say this, because the word trance has all sorts of implications. You go into a trance and trance music and, Yeah, Um, but trance is very simply any fixed state of attention. So anytime you focus on something, you're going into a form of trance. Now, there are very deep, deep trances like hypnosis, where you're so fixated on something that you've actually cut out the world and you're only fixated on that thing. You can go even further into states of madness. I mean, you know, really mentally ill people are in a very, very deep, almost irretrievable trance. But the most important thing to remember is a trance is any fixed state of attention. And here's the key. The key is healthy people have flexible minds. They can uh, put attention and remove it almost at will. And The more you have that capacity, the less you go into trance without knowing it unconsciously, the healthier you are and frankly, probably the cleverer you are, the more adaptable you are because then you're dealing with reality in a more flexible manner. I think the electronic technology that you and I are using so well for the benefit of things puts us in a trance all the time. Imagine, I'm sure every single viewer or listener knows when they go into a trance by just staring at their screen. They're actually not even doing anything. They're just staring at their screen. That's a trance state. It's a light trance state. But it is a trance state. A trance state is a way of human beings to learn. It's it, it locks our intention inside our head, locks it in order to figure something out. Right. The the key is we we're abusing it. We go into we go into trance all the time. You know, like you're thinking, then you go like this. You're daydreaming. You gone into trance, right? But because you've locked into something inside your head. The key is not to abuse it. It's a natural, it's a natural, in fact, a tremendously powerful human development. But if you do it too much, if you're locked in trance, and you mentioned it right at the beginning, you could be locked in a tribal trance, where your only things you're listening to are things that your tribe tells you, and yeah. you're only locked on those. That, I can't imagine anything more problematic for politics than that. right. And I, I need to add one other really important thing. Let's go back to needs—the iceberg. Unmet needs equal high emotion. To get them met, high emotion leads to trance, because your brain goes haywire looking for ways to get those needs met. Right. And and Ivan
0: says in the in uh, you know anger makes you stupid. Yep. Uh, and 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 so let's take that. So let's take the the primary. Let's take the primary emotion of fear. Um, and one of a trauma therapist who worked with me, uh, Dr. Wood, he says that you know an emotion is is something where the, you know there's a demand for action, right, um, uh, based on a need, and and so fear demands an action, doesn't it? And 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 so we go into this trance-like state. If if I understand this correctly, and I and I'll speak from you know I've I've had my encounters with fear, like many people have, and and my recollections of that are that. I almost became something to deal with it. And, and the same with, with, with like high end anger to overcome a foe or a threat. It is, it is as if my state changed and I became something to do something that would ordinarily, I would not have to do.
1: Let, let me give you the simplest example. I've noticed it in my own life, you go to a movie, you watch a movie, a James Bond movie, Right. You walk out, you feel a bit more like James Bond. Why? Because the whole movie you were in a trance, absorbing James Bond. Yeah, you do become whatever you're fixated on. Where, where's your attention? It's kind of what you are. Yeah, because so, you're—that's what your mind is eating in a way. It's what's it's devouring.
0: Right. So you talk about when we're healthy, you know, where our mind is able to regulate trance in a way. So I'm what I'm kind right. of bringing this all back to is if you think about the things we've been talking about. You think about uh, the levels of isolation, persistent fear, and uncertainty uh, that we've been dealing with, right? And, and then you start to introduce the, the, the polarization of politics and right. you know, set politics aside, the polarization around a thin cloth mask, right? I mean, there are just all of these things that are dividing us. It seems like the devil's cocktail to me, John, when those things come together and all of a sudden trance now starts to take on a very, very dangerous manifestation.
1: Well, and I just like to add a dimension of how this happens, which I, I don't partake in, frankly, but I see it occasionally, which is a Twitter feed. Yeah. People go on their Twitter feed. They're usually reading their people who have the same mindset as they do. And they're, when they're on their Twitter feed, they are in a trance because they're locked onto those tweets, absorbing stuff, trying to figure out whether to respond. That is a trance state, by the way, because very few people, I, I, I'm sad to say, I think, on Twitter are really thinking properly about what they say, how they should say it. They're just in a kind of response mode, automatic mode. And there's another element to all this we need to also emphasize, Scott, and that is that... If that's conditioning or effectively brainwashing, actually. Okay. If you do something long enough, you're going to be conditioned into it. You're just your habits, the layers go down and down. So, um, but maybe most importantly for the political world, two opposing camps, each in a trance state are going to fight because they're not listening to each other, to put it really simply. Okay. Okay. Extreme Republicans and extreme Democrats are in a trance state. They're fixated. Their mind is only focused on their own agenda. Yeah, It's a deep state of trance. And yeah. they can't, for conditioning reasons or high emotion attachment to those things, they haven't been trained to withdraw out of the conditioned state or that fixated state to look at what the other is saying.
0: And And that's what I want to... You know, that's why I actually started this interview off with the Atan story, because, you know, those Pashtun tribesmen, when they start that dance, it is conditioning. They know exactly what they're about to go do, and they are conditioning their minds and bodies to go do something that most humans will not do in a normal state. They're, you know, there's a conditioning that happens and a transformation that occurs you can, I mean, it's literally, it is palpable. When someone goes to that state, and I know you've seen it too. Absolutely. Different, I've been in it, and, and, and I think many of us are in it. And what concerns me, those Pashtun tribesmen know exactly who they are. They don't walk around doing the aton 23 hours a day. They do the aton when it is necessary, episodically, to engage in a threat and come back from the threat. But like you said, emergencies like that are not all the time. It's very appropriate for their societal, you know, uh dimension, but for us, we're dancing the aton on Twitter all the time.
1: And well listen, let me let me maybe even give you an example that I hope is American in a way. Um if you go to a sports match, any sports match, right? And you're cheering for your side or you're watching the game, you're in a trance. But I would say that's a healthy trance. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. So that's a kind of we have to accept that we always go into trance. It's a normal thing. But if you go to a political rally and you've put your critical brain aside and and you're the the leader triggers your buttons and you go into a trance and you're in a locked state of attention to whatever he or she says, okay? That leader is just dumping information into your head and you're not processing it critically. You're actually just absorbing it because you're in a trance. So there are two like, concrete examples of a healthy state of trance, watching a sports game. Who cares? It's fun, right? Right. And, And it's good for you in a way. And an unhealthy state. Because you're just listening to a leader without your critical functions. When you're in a trance, your mind is fixed on something. You've stopped thinking. That's why Ivan Turrell always says, high emotions make you stupid. So does a trance state. That's why when somebody's hypnotized, you can get them to do almost anything. Yeah. And I have a, I have a wonderful quote uh, from my book I'd just like to share with you about all this stuff. The conscious devil is useful. The unconscious devil is perilous. So in a way that sums up what we've been talking about the whole podcast is the more aware we become of these things the more we command them instead of them commanding us.
0: That's a beautiful quote. Would you say that here in the I mean, what is your concern as you and again I, you know, we've taken a lot of time here to um to to establish the miles that you've run here and that you've spent a lot of time looking at conflict and how it ends <laughs> where this leads to and I know you're you're a little reluctant, John, to weigh in on what's happening in our country. And I appreciate the heck out of that. It means more to me than, you know, but I'm asking you to I'm asking you, what do you see that concerns you about how we're treating each other here that we need to pay attention to?
1: Well, I'll speak as a fellow North American, if you wish, and somebody who's always had a deep respect for the United States uh, from north of your border. Um I'm really concerned about one thing about the u s above all others that you're losing your common myth your common context yeah. it's something I think until maybe the last ten years I didn't I thought the United States has a common myth and a common context you disagreed within that myth left right Democrat Republican north south you had fights you these are natural people compete in all societies and they disagree in all societies. But my concern now is that you don't have a common myth, that the country's fragmenting. And when, if you don't have any co- a common context, if any country doesn't have a common context, you've got a problem. Is There's a risk of fragmentation as each part decides, I'm more important than the whole. So that, to me, is the biggest concern I have. Um, we probably don't have enough time to go into why it's all happened but I do see that. What do you think of that, Scott? What's your view of that comment? No, I
0: agree. I think, I think you know, I've referred to it as a common narrative. Uh, in fact, okay. my chapter in Game Changers, um, Leading with Story, is, is about, in, 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 in Afghanistan at this time, this was, I never in my wildest dreams thought that we would lose our common narrative here in the United States, but I talked about the importance of, you know, organizationally, it, from communities to businesses to nonprofits, you know you, you you need to have a narrative that binds you you know there has to be a narrative and without that you are indeed um operating at a fragmented primal kind of bonding trust kind of level where it's it's very fear based and and it's very you know it's a, it's group dynamics at play versus you know a vision that bridges people and and yeah, I, I'm equally concerned about that. I would ask maybe if you would consider coming back on sometime, and we could dive into that. I really think it would be useful to unpack that.
1: Um, it would be my pleasure. Even though in the end, I have to kind of you know reiterate, I'm not American, so I don't you know I can't. I don't know your full myth because I've never lived it. you or your narrative. Cause you guys, you guys have, but we can, we can do that with pleasure. I
0: think, I think the important thing here is what, and I, and I'm asking uh, viewers and listeners to consider this is I think what we do need is, is honest, authentic third party uh, thought leaders like yourself, who can help us, you know, from the out. I think we're so close to it right now and we've become so fragmented that we can't even talk to ourselves. And, and I also think I want to finish this on the trance like state I believe that this trance-like state is permeating into a neighbor level, into a community level. I, and I, one of the things that we have to do is we have to kind of come out of that trance-like state that has gone too far. And and and, and it's manifesting in polarized politics and unfriending lifelong friends on Facebook. And do you have any thoughts, John, on how we can uh, do that at a societal level?
1: Absolutely. And um, first, it's I live in the UK and it happened here over Brexit, by the way. People were arguing at the community level. Um, I would sum it up as follows. If you notice you've stopped listening and you're angry, stop right there. That's, that's, you've gone into that trance mode, the conditioned trance mode. You got to stop right there, step away, calm yourself down and start listening again. That would be my advice for every single human being who's talking about politics or has a political opinion. And we all have political opinions. Right. So yeah. I would say, yeah.
0: And, and, you know, one of the things that I teach and, and I'm constantly talking about on this podcast is, you know, our state, and we learned this in Special Forces, but you can, you can regulate your own state. Yep. And, and, a, and, and three to five diaphragmatic breaths where you just belly out and drop on the exhale um, yep. and can drop you into that parasympathetic state and, and open the aperture for perspective and listening.
1: Absolutely and most people don't know that they have capacities in their mind to observe themselves. Right. Talk a little bit and that, more. That's 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 like a muscle that can be developed. Uh a, a writer called a psychiatrist called Arthur Dykman is very good on that. He wrote a book called The Observing Self. It's a critical human function to watch out for our pitfalls so we don't fall into our own stuff. Yeah. So let's
0: let's dive into context. I think we've got time for one more deep dive here. Um, you know, sure. you mentioned this context is everything. Uh, we talked about going local. Um, what do local? What do leaders need to know about context, and why is it so important in this uh, this this world that we live in?
1: Well, actually, it's ironic you asked that because it's probably local local leaders who are more in context than the than the high level leaders. Right. So they probably have advantages uh, because when you work in a local community, you're dealing with real human beings, you're dealing with real concrete practical issues that need to be resolved. Um, so you're probably already a bit more in context than, than uh, the people who run countries. And I'm more worried about what happens at the elite levels in context rather than the lower levels.
0: Well, can you, dive, can you dive into that with the context maybe of uh, Ian's book? Can you talk sure. a little bit about that as well explain sure. that for us?
1: Sure. McGill, Ian McGilchrist's book, it's called The Master and His Emissary. Is, I think it's a master work, and it explains so many of our problems today. And its premise is really straightforward. It's called, from the title, The Master and His Emissary. Ian says that our right hemisphere It should be the master because it connects us to the real world. The left hemisphere is the emissary because it represents that world in useful ways. Language, planning, analysis, forms. It says, okay, you right brain have seen the real world. Now this is the forms I'm going to give it. I would put to you, I mean, I'm making a massive leap here for the sake of time. I would put to you that what's happened is our world is becoming completely left hemisphere. It's all bits and forms and fragments of things that the left hemisphere can clatch onto, grab, and know what to do with without knowing where does that little bit situate in a larger context. Yeah, Your local leaders will automatically know because they live locally, this person, you don't have to think about it. This person fits like this in my local community. You know it. You may not know it perfectly, but you kind of know it. A bureaucracy in Washington designing regulation for that local community has no concept of those things. They're just designing stuff on paper. That's a left brain activity. Yeah. McGilchrist's point is we got to go back to the right brain. In a way, he's saying our politics got to go back to being more local, if you wish. The more local they are, the better, because they're rooted in the real world. As yeah. soon as you take it out to the left hemisphere, into the representation into the bureaucracy into power into grasping for resources you're going to have trouble
0: and that left fear, that left hemisphere takeover has is it safe to say has been empowered by just being inundated with social media and mobile yes. devices and 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 just a range of distractions that have have drawn us into that just that myopic you know view that the that the left hemisphere provides
1: absolutely because First of all, if you think about it, the vir- the screen is virtual and therefore it's already a representation of reality. It's not reality. So I would rather meet you in person and you know have a drink than this to talk to you through the screen. That's number 1. Number 2, the 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 web pages, the tweets are all little tiny fragments of reality. Think about how we we surf the web. We go from one fragment to another fragment to another fragment to another fragment. They're not in context. How in the world does your mind be able to shape a larger context? I mean, there are ways, by the way, music, deep reading, dealing with human beings, stories. There's a million ways to do it, but we're doing it less and less and less and less.
0: Yeah,
1: And we're more and more prone towards the technology. And very important, I think, what I'm about to say. You take that technology, you take bureaucracies, and you take power, and there are people in this world who know that they can marry those things into one massive monolithic force of coercion and control. Yeah. This worries me.
0: It does me this too. Worries. I've started to call those people divisionists that, that they why actually, do you
1: call them that? Just
0: because they, they actually um advance their uh, the agenda through by dividing like they use they, they oh the, division Sorry, okay, right. yeah and they know right. how that right. game is played yeah. they know they understand the waterline. they understand all of these things and they're actually use they're dividing us in order to advance an agenda and I'm like you I am I am very concerned about that and the reason I'm most concerned is I feel like as citizens of the world because of a range of factors and we are in, immersed in this trance-like state gone too far, we are giving our agency away. We are giving our agency away to politicians and other leaders uh, by, by siding with them on an issue and, and, and literally being willing to bash someone over the head with an axe handle based on something that an amateur politician is saying. And, and that really, really worries me.
1: Well, and and, uh, first of all, I agree with you. And second of all, let me add a dimension to that, because it's trickier, the ground that we're entering into. Some of these politicians, you're right, are clever. By instinct, they understand human nature. They may not be able to articulate it in terms of human givens or whatever, but they get it. They're offering safety and a little bit of entitlement and comfort to people. Now, most people, you give them safety, entitlement, like enough to... Just watch the screen. They're not going to buck. So what terrifies me is that they're giving just enough to keep the great majority of people content, relatively content. The problem is, goes back to what we said half an hour ago. There's a whole bunch of other human givens completely unattended to. How are they going to show up? Frankly, we're already in it. You guys have an opioid epidemic in your country. It's because of unmet human needs. Yeah. People need something to feel better. Now, that's the wrong answer, <laughs> I can say quite firmly, but there, there's, there's, there's an, an example of it. I read a statistic recently, I couldn't believe it, in Foreign Affairs magazine. More people have died in the United States between 2000, in the last 20 years from suicide and addiction then American soldiers died in the second world war. My goodness. Now that's a 20 year period. I have to admit that's a long period, but it's still a lot of people. It really is. And, and, it's an indicator that there's something wrong at the social level, unmet needs. When people are happy, they don't do that stuff. Oh. But I do agree that there are indications of politicians in their own trance, by the way, yeah. in their own trance marching along, building, a system that keeps us comfortable, but at what cost? Right. In my view, it's a very heavy cost.
0: It's well said. And and as we wrap it here, John, we are you know at Rooftop Leadership, we're really trying to build a, a movement of empowered local leaders um, around the world who have an understanding of their own nature. And, and they're not waiting for someone to give them permission to lead their family, their community. And they're, and they're leading much like you teach at the conciliators guild and Ivan teaches is is from uh, a healthy understanding of our human needs. And as we close, well, one, I'd like you to also consider coming back. I, this is just astounding. And I think this conversation is just getting warmed up. I would also like you to consider uh, any folks from your circle who could come in and help us continue to frame this out. I think we could do a lot of good here on that regard.
1: Well, I mean, given what you've just said, Scott, I think we should, we should discuss more, maybe introducing some of these ideas in a lot more detail. I mean, we just skimmed the surface iceberg uh, today uh, to some of your, your local leaders. Um, the more they know, the more leaders know about how human beings tick the better shot we have at improving our world in a, in a way that suits us. Ironically, it's amazing for me. I find it amazing that I even have to say that, but that's where we've come to, yeah. where we're not even, we're creating a world that doesn't even suit us. Imagine imagine where we've come to. It's a very strange place, yes. but I'd love to continue the conversation and thank you so much for this opportunity, Scott. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Fantastic. It's uh, really been great. Um, I, I really, really appreciate your time, John. Is there anything that you would, uh, that you would add that we didn't cover you know, you've got a leader out there watching right now who's frustrated and they see what's happening and it just seems so overwhelming. And um, what can I possibly do? What would you say um, to that person in that moment about your well, journey of leadership and what you've learned?
1: Sure. I would say this. I would say just like you and I uh, found each other in a way and we connect and we talk. I think it is. There are a lot of people out there who do get things. And maybe one of the keys for those people who are frustrated is to connect the more we can create a network of people who are interested in these issues, who understand them in their own way. The last thing we want to do is is create another brainwashing system that would be terrible. So I would say to anybody who's frustrated is connect. Go and find new knowledge about yourself. Connect to people who have similar affinities and interests. And that degree of connectivity can grow. And then, frankly, you never know. Networks can do amazing things over time.
0: I love it. John, thank you so much. Thank you for you and Ivan and Ian and all your crew for giving us a language uh, and 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 a shot at understanding what's what's happening. You know, um, it, it really means more than, you know, and, and you you all work so hard at it, at it that a lot of times you don't you're so close to it. You don't realize what it means. Uh, but, you know, as a for an individual who's seen a lot of violence in his life, um, and just never wants to see that again. I, I can't tell you how much it means to, to work with someone like yourself who, who, who shares this with us and gives us some tools. Um, I'm immensely grateful. And this has just been fa- I can do this all day, but I'll wrap it here. Um, anything to close?
1: Not at all, Scott. Thanks a lot for this opportunity and look forward to doing it again. Thanks a lot.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, okay. John. Thank, Thank you everybody you. for, uh, for listening. Uh, if you, you, uh, Know someone that could benefit from, from from what we've talked about here, and I bet you do. Share this podcast with them. Send it to them because, like John said, it is all about connecting. It is all about going local uh, and working together to find ways to uh, to overcome the challenges that we're facing. Because nobody else is coming. It's just us, uh, and it's just local leaders that are going to get us out of this. So, thanks for what you do, and I'll see you on the rooftop.